This Ends at Prom is a critical analysis show and is being produced in solidarity with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. The podcast you're about to hear was produced during the strikes, and without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, the movie being reviewed here wouldn't exist. For more information, feel free to visit the Freelance Solidarity Project at freelancesolidarity.org. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Where were you in 62 asked the ad campaign for American graffiti and the entire baby boomer generation showed up to reminisce through a nostalgic dreamscape of small town 1962 California teens vividly experiencing their last night of summer after high school. George Lucas's creative and commercial breakthrough left its hot rod tire tracks all over every coming of age film for at least the next 20 years. Fortunately, the genre could not have asked for a richer, deeper, or more hilariously heartfelt cinematic role model. This is the description from Mike McBeardo McPadden in Teen Movie Hell about American Graffiti, a movie celebrating its 50th birthday this year. And yet, like, I don't know, maybe it's just that when you're born in the 90s, everything prior to like the 70s is just ambiguously in the past. But it's Mm -hmm. really hard to think like, no, this did come out after beach movies, though. Right. (laughs) Such a strange, strange time period. But yeah, it's it's a huge anniversary. This is another one of those heavy hitter films that, while not directly about teen girls and especially not marketed towards teen girls, was such an important film to the teen movie canon that we had to talk about it. And it's 50. I'm not going to miss a 50th anniversary. I think this makes it the oldest film we've ever covered on the show. Just barely beating up Black Christmas, yes. Incredible. So, yeah, we're we're here to talk about American Graffiti, and fortunately, we are not alone this week. Joining us today is Bradford Oman, a.k.a. Ethan Anderton, editor over at Slash Film, my dear friend who I talk to every day on Slack at work, but I've never gotten to meet in real life, so this is doubly exciting to get to like hang out and it's not work uh but brad's here to talk with us about american graffiti hi brad hey that's me i'm brad (laughs) (laughs) i'm so thrilled that you're here i knew that when we were like we got to talk about american graffiti i was like i really want somebody who is not us to join us and Luckily, you answered the call and you were like, I would love to talk about this movie. So what is it about this movie that you love? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I love everything about this movie. Like, not um, you know, to be very broad about it to begin with, but like, um, I discovered this movie uh just right at the perfect time when I was a teenager, and um, some of that comes from my parents. But both of my parents uh have loved movies and introduced me to to movies when I was very young. You know, I I grew up watching stuff that was probably you know, beyond my age group, and they didn't really mind. You know, I grew up uh, at a very young age watching Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, you know, I, there were regular kid staples like the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie mm-hmm. and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but I was also uh, weirdly obsessed with movies like Rain Man, and I enjoyed Wayne's World, even though most of the adult jokes went over my head, you know? So this was stuff that I was watching when I was six, seven, eight years old. Um, and, but... Uh, so they would introduce me to a lot of movies as I was growing up, and American Graffiti came around a time when I was a teenager, and uh, largely it came about because of both not my parents and my obsession with Star Wars, because they were like, uh, you know, you should watch this because it's George Lucas's uh, movie, and it's completely different from any of that. And what the other reason I really relate to this movie so much is because I grew up in the Midwest in a small town in Northwest Indiana called Laporte. I actually I still live here right now, and this this movie despite taking place back in 1962, very much captures the life of living in any small town across America. And even though, like, George Lucas taps into a very specific moment in, like, California history when, like, hot rodding came back and there was, you know, all this kind of, like, hippie culture and whatnot, the vibe of this movie as far as, like, what teens are doing in this small town in California is exactly what life was like here in Laporte. Like, I spent so many weekend evenings just driving around with friends and screwing around and doing a lot of the same stuff that they're doing in this movie. So to me, like this movie set in a completely different decade was about me and my friends and and my town. See, like that's so perfect though, especially because like both BJ and I are also from like smaller towns in the Midwest. And I don't know if people from the cities like understand what driving is just like, what do you want to do? Just go drive. Like that's such that's yeah. such an intrinsic part of like small town life versus like we're in LA and everyone's like, oh God. But like it's like over by Pasadena. It's really far. It's like four <laughs> miles. <laughs> to be fair, four miles here can sometimes be an hour because it's hell. Oh, but... I know. But like the, in the Midwest, it's like, I don't know, you want to take a day trip to Chicago? It's only a five hour drive there. <laughs> right. <laughs> like there is something so like nostalgic, even though none of us on this podcast were alive in the 60s. But there is something nostalgic about just the art of driving around with your friends, which is becoming a dying thing even in small towns because gas prices are so goddamn expensive right now. So you can't just like give your buddy $10, go to the 7-Eleven, get Slurpees, get gas, and then just drive off and, you know, see where the night takes you. That's sort of not becoming a thing anymore, which is really sad because some of my best memories as a teenager were from the nights my friends and I just said, well, we'll see where we end up and like just being with each other and spending time together. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. So yes, this movie is a seminal classic. Um, I also watched this movie pretty young and I'm pretty sure that it was also the Star Wars connection. Um, This is one that I watched so early that I don't have like a hardcore memory of when I saw it. But I do know that my dad is really into this movie because this is set the year that both my parents were born. 
So they have definite nostalgia for this movie for sure. And yeah, same. My, my dad was born in, in 60 and my mom in 61. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So I think all of our parents are like about the same age. And I remember watching Star Wars and my dad being like, you want to see another film that doesn't have space lasers in it? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and this is the movie, though, that I do like to point towards whenever people like to disparage George Lucas. Like, I don't know who it is that came up with, like, the the George, uh, you know, Toy Boy Lucas nickname moniker that he has. But it's like, no, no, no. He can actually make one hell of a movie because it's not like, like, I'm sure there's like American graffiti shirts and maybe like lunchboxes you could buy, but this is not like a heavily merchandised film and it still fucking rules. Yeah, absolutely. Harmony, how about you? What is your history with this movie? I'm not 100% sure, but this might have been the first time I've watched this movie like front to back. Because it would just be one that you would catch on TV all the time. Because unlike a lot of other, like, you know, we'll, we'll get into this when we get to context, I guess. But, like, there's not a lot that you really have to cut around in this movie in order to get it on TV. There's not, like, too much language. There's nothing too offensive. It's it's pretty tame and saccharine compared to, like, a lot of, like, the boy fuck off movies we got during this decade. So I think I've seen this entire movie sans, like, a lot of bare butts in, like, the first 30 minutes. Um I've seen it at some point, but this is the first time I've seen it in like one solid chunk. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you're totally right. Like I'm thinking about it. Like there really isn't a lot of stuff that they would have to edit for TV outside of like mooning and pantsing, which is one of my favorite like teen movie hijink pranks because <laughs> it's obviously awful. Nobody wants to be mooned. But in the grand scheme of of immature juvenile pranks it's not the worst thing in the world that can happen and mm -hmm. yeah like at the very least it's it's the most innocent form of flashing right exactly yeah. like you there's a mooning sequence in greece like they moon the cameras during the american bandstand everybody forgets about that because that part does get edited for tv so it was nice to rewatch american graffiti and it's like oh yeah there's a lot of butts in this movie <laughs> Yeah, C certainly more than zero butts, which is what I recall. But like even even mooning is like a more innocent, like harmless way of pranking someone than like other equivalents where it's like uh, what play punchies or give your friend a tapper, which are a right. little bit more violence based. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so obviously none of us were around in 1973. Uh when this movie came out and we were certainly not around in 1962 when it is set. So Harmony, what context do you want to bring to the table in terms of the film landscape of when this comes out? So American Graffiti is a really unique film purely because it's the first movie to really look nostalgically back on like your adolescence and it not be like a wartime drama or something. <laughs> It's uh, it's 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 really um, it's really innocent, but in a, in a kind of bleak way, as you see, especially at the end of the movie. But it's its whole thing was kind of that it was the first, and it's really fascinating to think about only a ten year turnaround of nostalgia like this, especially because we tend to associate like the nostalgia cycle with like a twenty year cycle, where you know you get old enough and you get a little money and you have a family and you have adult responsibilities and you wistfully think on like your 15 year old years or whatever when you're 35. Uh, this is not one of those. And it's also a really unique, fairly substantial teen film for its time because the teen genre didn't really exist at this point per se. You had um, some outliers like Rebel Without a Cause is probably one of the best examples, but that has transcended the teen genre and is just considered like cinema, especially with like yeah, the legend tend, of James Dean. 
Yeah, people tend to not can even like process that movie as a teen movie unless you're like trying to make a list where it's like, well, we need to add, like we well, need to clash actually, up the joint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those. Um, and then in the 60s, which again, it's weird to think like, no, this did come out after all of these movies, but it's set before all these movies. And it's a pretty important part of where the, the time period that American Graffiti set in. You get like the very um, schlocky, cheap, silly fun time of beach movies which is like the true first like teen genre we get in cinema as like a trend uh gidget will probably do on the show at some point just to encapsulate all of those mm -hmm. but even just looking at like what else we got in the 70s because it's not a lot it's not until we get to like the end of the decade with like slasher films or the sex comedies it's like there's there's teen films but they're incidentally about teens so like in this decade, you get like Badlands or a Clockwork Orange or like, <laughs> I, I don't know, Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane or Last, Last House on the Left. Like stuff that's incidentally about young people, but is certainly not a for teens. And yeah, even like we'll by be... the time you get to like later on, you get Grease and you get Animal House, both of which are set about like the very late 50s, very early 60s, and in their own unique ways are trying to do what American Graffiti's doing. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, later on this year, we're going to be talking about The Exorcist because that's also turning 50, which also is a film that incidentally is a coming of age story. Yes. But like there really weren't movies being made with like the the foresight of like this is going to be very, very popular with teenagers because I do know that everybody who worked on this movie they all thought this was just going to be like another drive-in movie. And it's like, yeah, it's a fun thing we did and it's going to play some drive-ins and then it's going to go away. And then it obviously became a phenomenon. It was nominated for Academy Awards and like none of them anticipated how much this was going to resonate with people. I mean, and it, it cost them less than a million to make. It made almost 150 million at the box office alone. Never mind the massively selling soundtrack and the retrospective rentals. Which is yeah. just wild like and that's also like that's 1970s money so that's like nuts <laughs> when you for inflation, inflation. it's about six times i believe something like that crazy it's so nuts to think about like a teen movie making that kind of money because that really doesn't happen anymore outside of like slashers so as we said previously, this movie predates Star Wars um, and how this kind of came to be has a pretty interesting story. So, Brad, what do you know about like how this movie got made? Yeah, so it definitely had uh, an uphill battle because uh, it came in the wake of THX 1138, which was George Lucas's first movie. And uh, it was a sci-fi movie at Warner Brothers. Uh, even though it's, it's a very good movie, it was not necessarily what the studio wanted to see, especially when it came to box office success. And so um, they weren't interested in doing, you know, whatever Lucas was doing next. And while they were, uh, Lucas was working on THX 1138, um, you know, Coppola had told him that he should maybe try and do something different and something that was like a little bit more, fun and he had been leaning towards doing something about like that hot rod culture in california at the time because it's something that he uh lived through and experienced himself lucas is uh very much was obsessed with cars in fact before becoming a director came along he was very much interested in going and like just working on race cars and being involved in, in that as his profession you know that that was kind of what his trajectory was so uh, after thx 1138 you know he was trying to get financing and no one 
wanted to pay for him to to do American Graffiti. And he wasn't interested in writing him himself, so he was trying to get money to pay somebody else to write the script because after THX 1138, he kind of swore off doing any screenwriting. And so he was able to secure like $10,000 um, to get the screenplay written. And so um, he wanted uh, Willard Hike and Gloria Katz to do it. Um, they had talked about the story for a long time, but then they ended up being busy with another project. And so they couldn't do it when the, the money actually came around and he was able to, to start moving forward on it. And then they had another draft that was done, but it was way too different from what Lucas had originally seen the story draft done. He said it focused way, a lot more on like kind of like a hot rod from hell kind of aspect was the way he said it. There's <laughs> there's there's like a like an hour and 18 minute collection of like um, interviews and like uh, featurettes like w for the making of this movie where he talks about this. And so uh, he ended up writing the screenplay himself simply because he didn't like what he'd already paid for and he just ended up doing it on his own. And so it, uh, af after that, they were able to um, get interest in, in the screenplay. Lucas actually used, like, the last bit of money he had to fly overseas to meet with the president of United Artists because he wasn't having any um, success getting in contact with anybody in the States. And that's where he was able to garner, you know, interest and really get it going. So a after that, everything started to, to finally uh, come together. And with, you know, uh, Coppola was really in instrumental in making sure that like this, um, there was actually a big name attached at the time because he had just done the Godfather. Coppola was a reliable name and they knew that since they didn't have any major stars in it, relying on just teen talent with the exception of, you know, Ron Howard kind of being the, the most well-known actor at the time. And uh, yeah, and it, they, they were able to, to shoot in uh, California in a, a small town called Petaluma and uh the you know the rest is history as they say i like it's so wild too when you think about the people that are in this movie and how so many of them are going to go on to become like these absolute superstars and to know that early on they couldn't you know find the funding they couldn't find distribution they couldn't find producers because like everybody has to start somewhere and the idea of like ron howard being the biggest name at the time which at this point he has like Andy Griffith show he's a child actor so we're witnessing like a child actor trying to make the transition from child acting to like teen acting young adult acting which you know we didn't have like the machine for it the way we do now yeah. and so that is super funny to me I read an interview with Ron Howard where he was talking about you know this movie's 50th anniversary and how there was a, a night where Harrison Ford and some of the other uh, like boys of the of the cast were drinking beer and like throwing beer bottles, just being you know Riley teens. And uh, Ron Howard drove a VW Beetle because of course he did. And <laughs> like, I would. <laughs> and he was like, "Hey fellas, I hope you're having fun. It looks like a lot of fun, but can I move my car, please?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure, sure." So he goes down to move his car, and then they start throwing bottles at him and screaming, "Dance, Opie, dance!" Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like again, like silly pranks that you know, out of context, you're like, "That's horrifying." But when you hear Ron Howard talk about it, he's like. It was one of like the best summers of my life. It was so much fun. You know, and Harrison Ford can do whatever he wants. He is such a star. We'll we'll we will talk about Harrison Ford having like a small role and being just like an absolute superstar in a small role. Uh, but before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show.
Hello, prom party. Yes, it is BJ. I am back to do the morning announcements for this month. The first one is the usual. If you would like to support This Ends at Prom, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. We have tiers that start as low as $1 and ones that go all the way up to $10. If you want to give us more, that's cool too. And this month on the Patreon, we've got some really cool stuff for you. As part of our musical milestones, we're talking about Taylor Swift's movie. There's just too much to say, and people have been underestimating teen girl audiences for too long, so we're going to talk about it. You don't have to be a Swifty to enjoy it, because it's going to be a very fun discussion, talking about the tech side of things, as well as how Taylor Swift screwed over the Hollywood system, which, given the circumstances of the strikes right now, we are a huge fan of anybody willing to screw over the studio systems. And as far as our Sadie Hawkins episodes are concerned, it's September. We're going back to school. So we're going to talk about two college boy classics, Van Wilder and Animal House. Ugh, let's see how that goes. In addition to that, we are still on our trek through TV Homecoming, going through the first and only season of My So-Called Life. And as always, there is the monthly playlist from Harmony. It's always good stuff. We love how excited you all have been in sharing with us the bands that you like that you've heard because of the show. If you are unable to support the show financially at this time, we totally understand it. We are in a recession right now. The only thing that we ask is that you give us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to the show and maybe share us with a friend. And this month, we also want to shout out a brand new book we think some of you out there might really like just in time for spooky season. The Scary Movie Writer's Guide from Seth Sherwood, he's our guest on Hellfest, is a 100-plus page step-by-step -step workbook that guides you to plan, plot, and write your own horror screenplay. It takes you through the entire process, starting with generating ideas, forming work habits, all the way through the process of making a detailed outline. Cook up plots, find themes, play with subgenres, decide on point of view and style, cook up characters and monsters. I mean, it's a workbook for a reason. But if you are interested in checking out this book, you can get it at www.scarywriter.com. Again, that is www.scarywriter.com. Dot com. Thank you so much for listening, and back to the movie. Alrighty, so as previously mentioned, this movie has a just bananas cast when you look at it in hindsight. And I guess our, like, main protagonist, like, this is definitely an ensemble film, but our main protagonist is Richard Dreyfus as Kurt Henderson. And Richard Dreyfus is 27 in this movie, <laughs> um, playing a recent high school graduate. And we joke a lot about how, you know, films from this era tended to cast, like, people well into like their late 20s, early 30s in the case of Greece. Um, but the difference though is that Richard Dreyfus is also with actual teens. So he just looks like someone's stepdad this whole movie. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, there's, there's definitely some shots also where you can look at his face and go, there's a full beard screaming to get out and they shaved you down to the skin because they need you to not look like a full grown man. <laughs> yeah. And like this, the, the styling doesn't help, but like, I know that's like of the era, but it's like, I know so many old men who still dress like this because oh. that's, that's what they looked like when they were cool and hip. That's, that's, that's someone's stepdad putting on his best to go to Easter service. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the character of Kurt. So Brad, what do you make of this character? Uh, you know, so Kurt is very much feels kind of like a, a a George Lucas character in that it feels a lot like George Lucas. And Lucas even says most of the uh, of the characters, the at least as far as the male characters are concerned, 
came from his own kind of life at like different phases of it. Um, the, um, you have the, uh, the, the nerdy character, uh, played by Charles Martin Smith, you know, uh, Toad, and that definitely represents him when he was younger before he started getting into cars. Uh, and then you have like the Milner era when he was like really into hot riding and stuff like that. Uh, but then there's still like this persona of, you know, Kurt underneath there who has like a little bit of insecurity, but wants to get out of like this, uh, you know, small town still at the same time and is trying to reconcile all of that. Um, and I think, you know, Kurt's, Kurt is like one of the characters that I feel like I, when I was a teen, I identified with uh, the most, you know, be, being in that position. And like, um, it's it's funny, you know, pointing out like Richard Dreyfus looking like he's so much older than, than everybody else. But he works so well with the rest of the cast that like it 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 doesn't really take you out of it you know i think like that's and and, mm-hmm. and part of that comes from just the time of like there were always older people playing younger people in movies like this um but but richard dreyfus is is so good in this role that he 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 feels young even though he doesn't look very young oh yeah like richard dreyfus is very much like the uh the, the center I guess like he's, he's the, like the neutral resting point of all of these boys where it's like, he's not too much of a dork. He's not trying too hard to be cool with his kind of bad colored hot rod. Um, granted I have a color problem, so I might not be seeing the same color as everyone else's, but <laughs> he's, Richard Dreyfus is like very much like the everyman relatable one. I think of all of these, he's the most, uh, normal, normal boy. He is also the friend of the group that I feel like has his shit together the most. And mm-hmm. because of that, that is, you know, kind of causing the existential crisis of I'm going to go to college out east. I have to do all these things. And what's also wild to watch is that this is the time period where it wasn't like standard for people to go to college. A lot oh, of times people college enlist- boy. Yeah, like you enlisted or you took over your parents' company or, you know, you went to trade school. It wasn't like as common as it is now that you go to college after high school. So you see like a whole town, like everyone he interacts with, it's like, you're going to college. That's awesome. And like, they're so proud of him. And you see all of that pressure that he's carrying with him of like, I don't know if I want to do this, but I also know that if I don't do this, all of these people are going to know because it's a mm-hmm. small town. Everybody knows your business. And so there's like this extra layer of pressure that he's put on himself. And then of course, you know, he sees Suzanne Summers and is like, well, my whole life has got to change because I got to follow her all night. She's beautiful. And maybe if she loves me, then I'll stay here. And it's, I, I, it's such a teenage way of looking like I'm looking for a sign in the universe to tell me not to do this thing that I know I should do because I'm terrified. And if there's like this, unexplainable sign then that means that i'm not the one who made the call for sure yeah i mean just he's just he's, he's basically looking at you know this goddess in a car next to him and just going like please just give me a reason <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think that that's such a relatable thing as as a teenager where like you don't want to admit out loud i'm scared or well, also when you're like in school and you live with your parents, you don't really have a lot of major life decisions that you're making. It's like you're on a, an obvious trajectory. It's like you go to school, you get good grades, you maybe join a sports team, you try to get a girl. It's all pretty standard teen fare. And anything that's heavier, someone else is either guiding you towards or helping you with. And this is him going like, oh, God, I have to make a decision by myself. And they all do. His is just probably the most obvious because he's like the central one. But like. You see that with like 18 year old boys who can enlist. And unfortunately for one of these boys, it doesn't work out well for him. Mm -hmm. So this is just a a really 
important time where you kind of have to be making these big life changes for the first time. What did you say? Quick, quick, hang a right. What? Why? Steven, cut over to G Street. I just saw a vision. I saw a goddess. Come on, you gotta catch up to her. You see anything? Come on, Kurt. We can't be spending half the night chasing girls down for you. Lori, huh? I'm telling you, this was the most perfect, dazzling creature I've ever seen. She's gone. Get it. She spoke to me. She spoke to me right through the window. I think she said, I love you. That means nothing to you people. You have no romance, no soul. She, someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. When you turn the corner. Oh, Kurt. So the next one that I want to talk about is John Milner, who is personally, I think, my favorite of all of the boys because of what he represents. Um, because you hear him talk and he's just like, I don't want anything to change. You know, wearing his, you know, 1950s white T-shirt looking extra greaser, like oh, still rolling clinging. his cigarettes into the sleeve mm-hmm. of his white shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yep, he's clinging to that 50s aesthetic as hard as he possibly can. I mean, he even had the conversation with Carol, played by Mackenzie Phillips, where she's like, don't you think the Beach Boys are boss? And he's like, nah, real music died when Buddy Holly died. (laughs) I don't like that surf shit. (laughs) Yep. It's like, all right, please chill out. Uh, But I love that character because I think we all also kind of know that guy when you're in high school, the one who just like really doesn't want to let it go and doesn't want to let go of like what he views to be like his peak. Uh, so Brad, how do you feel about Milner? Yeah. I mean, I love Miller. Paul, Paul Matt in this, in this role is, it's so good. Um, and it's cool to see, uh, you know, the, the way that this movie assembled such a great cast from unlikely places because he was a boxer at the time and didn't really have any acting experience. So to put him in this role, Lucas, when when he like has a sense about somebody when it comes to casting, like he really just just nails it. And this is one of the, the best examples of that, because everybody is so perfectly cast in this movie. Um, and watching Milner and like his relationship with with Mackenzie Phillips character as it goes on, like the, the, the dynamic they have between each other is is so fun and the what like what they both learn from each other as the night goes on and everything like that's to me that that relationship and like the way their story plays out is uh is the most fun in the movie oh i agree honestly i wish i we got a bit more of this i don't really know what more they would add to this but i just like this whole interaction these two have i think he's also like my favorite of the boys despite the fact like he talks wicked shit about the beach boys and how dare you say that about brian wilson (laughs) and the other wilson brothers but not not to be a stickler about the music but i I will talk about the beach boys anytime i get the opportunity to you hear all the music in this which i do love that it is in universe music like there's a band playing or it's coming out of people's uh, cars, the whole Wolfman Jack thing. It's like the music exists and you're surrounded by it. And we can definitely have our old conversation about that. But I kind of love that it's like, man, you hear all this stuff and then you hear Brian Wilson's arrangements of harmonies and you go, oh, but it's clearly so much better. Milner, you're way, you're wrong. You're so wrong. But I, I, I don't know if this is a relatable thing for other people, but like when you're in high school, like, I don't know, do you ever have this like, maybe it happens more for college, I remember, but you get wistful for your youth and your youth was maybe only like three years earlier <laughs> where I, I have so many friends who would be like, Oh yeah, I took my N64 with me to college or I took my GameCube with me to college so that we could get drunk and play super smash brothers. Like it was the old times. And it was like, 
dude, that was maybe like six years ago. <laughs> like, it's not that different, but it's just the simplicity when things weren't so complicated, things weren't so much pressure. And I don't know, just maybe that things truly were never are never going to be better or you're never going to mean as much to you as when you were like 13 years old and it was the coolest shit you'd ever seen. I don't know if that is like a, a wildly transcendent uh, feeling, but I recall that a lot. Yeah. I think I definitely do that. And I definitely had that in college. And I think there's a difference between being wistful for high school because like that's when you hit your peak versus being wistful for high school and like what it felt like to have hope and optimism still. And you ahead been, of you. You haven't gotten yeah, your you ass haven't... kicked by like finals at 2 a.m. <laughs> exactly. I think like there is a huge difference between those experiences because I definitely went to college with people who were wistful for college because that's when they were like the coolest they had ever been. And then now they're in college and they're kind of a nobody and they don't know how to process that versus like I looked back to like doing hijinks and being ridiculous and having fun times, but you know, also not having to deal with any sort of like adult things like having to file taxes, like that shit sucked. Um, Definitely wistful for those. How about you, Brad? No, 100%. Like, there was... It's it's funny that <laughs> Armony specifically mentions, you know, Super Smash Brothers because when I was in college, there were plenty of parties where the GameCube was brought out and we had Super Smash Brothers tournaments. Um, that, that was definitely something that was uh, prominent throughout college. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even, like, as, you know, there were, like, popular video games around the time, like, you had, you had Halo and whatnot, but, like, even as Halo, like, evolved and stuff like that we would constantly go back to the original halo you know it just like it wasn't so so long ago but it just it takes you back to to a different time you know it's it's interesting how nostalgia has this huge range of like thinking back you know whether it's decades before or even just a few years ago you know and especially when you're young like it's because that's just all your frame of reference is you know it's just thinking about that like i i loved you know watching the cartoons that I enjoyed when I was a kid, when I was in, you know, college, and I still enjoy doing that today. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite pastimes is getting high and watching Hey Arnold. Like that is, <laughs> like that is a thing I do as somebody in their mid thirties. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's also just like kind of fun to think about because we don't like we're we're surrounded by nostalgia. If you spend any time like on the internet or go to like a Target, you could probably buy like a Hey Arnold shirt at Target right now. Like probably you are just surrounded by memories of youth in a way that this was certainly not the case at the time because you had to leave, you know, childish, silly things behind. Like leave your rock and roll music and your hot rods and all your and your chasing skirts and all that stuff behind. You got to go be a man. You got to go be a lawyer. Going to go enlist in the army. Got to got to do all these grown up things. And we, we, we still have that. But especially with like millennials and the way that people on the Internet can just go remember this thing that you forgot about and you go oh fuck i totally forgot about pirates of dark water whoa <laughs> like that's uh i don't know that that's a thing that the internet has certainly helped memorialize in the way that it hasn't for past generations and i i think this is like just so fun to look at as like ground zero for that because it is it's the first nostalgia trip of a movie one of the things that's so interesting to me about this because it does set that that precedent of like movies that are you know focused on nostalgia and looking back at how great these times were is you would think that a movie like this 
wouldn't have such a downer of an ending. You like, you, oh yeah, like this would this would be something where like I would expect this kind of movie to arrive in the middle of like the hype around nostalgia. And someone is like, wait a minute, let's remember that like this is it's sure it's fun to look back, but like there's some like tragic shit waiting in the future here. Like let's not forget mm-hmm. that. But like right out of the gate, you know, Lucas is like, no, like I'm we're ending this and like I'm sh- showing how depressing life is after all this nostalgia, and so uh, it's it's a bold thing and it's it's surprising to see and. It's it's weird that a lot of the movies that followed, you know, were mostly just focused on the the highs and like the man. Think about how great things were without, you know, bringing us back to earth necessarily. Oh yeah, like man, isn't Dazed and Confused just a silly fun time? Isn't The Diner like a cool film? Isn't Liquish Pizza like look, he recreated what it looked like? Like th- this has created an entire genre of of this film, and I'm not sure, especially with the ending and the like simmering under bleakness of like the end of an era that we have during this specific year that I don't think any of them truly capture that feeling to the same degree. Cause like there's, there's one person, I don't remember who it is, but it's like, Oh yeah. Uh, th- this guy's dream is he wants to interview the president. He wants to interview president Kennedy. And I went, Oh, you better step to it. You're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, and you're totally right because this movie does have this like sense of, you know, wistfulness for this time period, but there is this constant, like almost melodramatic presence that just kind of simmers beneath the surface of the whole movie, the whole time, because we don't know until we get, you know, the, the, the postscript or whatever, where it's like, here's what happened to all of them, where it's like, Terry's going to go to war and he's going to be missing and they're never going to find his body. Mm-hmm. And Milner's going to get in a drunk driving accident two years from now. And it's like, you have these characters and you love this time it, uh, that they're spending together. You love this experience that they're going on. And then the movie kind of pulls out the rug out from underneath you. And it's like, Hey, remember though, this is set in reality and not everybody gets a happy ending. And sometimes this literally is the best time in your life because you don't get much more life to live. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a very stark reminder for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, especially because it's like it's the benefit of hindsight. Like if you were to compare this to beach movies, because like this takes place right as the beach movie genre is about to take off. Those are just fantasies. They're silly fun times. They're, you know, being a teen in the moment versus this, which is like, no, we know what happens in the 60s and we can go ahead and like see kind of kind of fantasy fantasize what the trajectory of these characters is going to look like and then make a sequel that is significantly less well remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um so you know speaking more of our characters, we we have Terry the Toady, who I love so much. Um this is not my favorite character, but this is probably like my favorite just dork, like unapologetic dorky <laughs> character um, in this whole era of movies. Like he definitely does kind of like, he sets the standard for these dorky characters moving forward. Like he's the grandfather of all of them. Uh, so Brad, how do you feel about him? Yeah, I, I love Toad. He's such a goober and uh, his, his entrance just sets the stage for everything too. Uh, when he shows up on his Vespa scooter and just crashes it into the side of Mel's driving as he tries to to <laughs> stop. What's funny about that too, uh, in the the making of um, Charles Martin Smith talks about how that was actually an accident. He he didn't really know how to drive a Vespa scooter. He kind of learned in like an hour before they started shooting, <laughs> and he came up with the, this idea of like uh, bumping over the curve in kind of like a clumsy way, and he was gonna like uh, hit like hit the clutch so that it would it would stall and turn off 
but when he he did it, it didn't exactly happen the way it went. He bumped it into first, which is why it flies into like the the, the side of Mel's. And he thought they were going to call cut, so he kind of like paused for a second, but he didn't hear it, so they kept going, and it just works out to like be this great moment for his character. Mm, oh, it's perfect. He's and, like, so awkward. <laughs> I mean, I also think Vespa scooters are the coolest, in addition to a Volkswagen. I would also love to drive one of those. But <laughs> no, he's he really is like the archetype of this character, and he has all of the hallmarks of what we would see in sex comedies later, but they totally missed what makes him endearing, because like... Most of, the, most of the stuff you'll see moving on is like, oh, he's a they're a lovable loser, but like they can still get the girl, but only because the plot says so versus him trying really, really hard. <laughs> yes. OK, thank you for bringing that up, because when you think about a lot of the geeky characters that are going to follow, you either go really, really hard in one direction. The ones that we always point to are the ones from just one of the guys who carry lizards around in their pockets. <laughs> or you end up with like the Revenge of the Nerds nerds where the entire movie is telling you like you're supposed to root for this, but they're actually like garbage people and like you should not be rooting for them in the slightest like I root for Terry because I see that he's trying really hard he's just sucks at it yeah. and like he, his intentions are good like he's not trying to be a sleazeball he just has a lot of emotions and a lot of hormones and he doesn't know what to do with any of them and he's trying to be a cool guy and it's just not working out for him well, but he's well, he's genuine also the girl is on the same page with it he's not trying to be like hey let me try and win you over she's like no, I want you to buy me alcohol and then I want to have a have sex. Like that's what that's what I want, but you've got to buy it. You've got to make the moves. He's like, "Oh god, I've never done this." Yes. <laughs> Candy Clark as Debbie. Oh my god. Okay, we get cuz we can talk about her. She is so good in this and it is also shocking that this performance got a Oscar nomination for best supporting actress. Yeah, for sure. I read her talking about it where she was like, this is before it becomes really competitive because like 1976 is the year where it gets like very competitive at the Oscars because that's the year that you get like Barry Lyndon and Jaws and Nashville and one flew over the cuckoo's nest, like and all dog in, day in dog day afternoon, all in one year. And it's like, okay, this is, we're in a whole new playing field here. But when she got nominated, it wasn't super competitive. So she like put out a humble, like quarter page ad in variety and the Hollywood reporter that was like, for your consideration, me. And I'm like, that's so cute yeah. because this is her second ever movie. She did fat city, a movie that I love. And then she did this and it's like, surprise, here's an Oscar nomination. And you know what? She deserves it because she's incredible in this movie. And we didn't have teen girl characters like this yet. Like she's so revolutionary and doesn't get enough credit for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the other main boy that we've yet to talk about is Ron Howard as Steve Belander and his incredible, remarkable girlfriend, Cindy Williams as Lori. The Cindy Williams recently passed away and I was really upset about it because I love Cindy Williams. Um, and these two are the, the prototype of the high school couple that is going to have to break up because high school's over and they're having the conflict. This is a, a character type that we are going to see over and over and over again throughout teen movies. But the thing I love the most is that Lori is at the same level, if not higher than Steve. Like she is not fridged by any stretch of the imagination. She is very active in her role in this movie. 
I love the two of them in this and it makes total sense why they would end up being like scene partners through like happy days and Laverne and Shirley and things moving on because they work so well off of each other. Um, and I learned something in doing a little bit of research is that George Lucas did encourage improvisation on set because he wanted it to feel very lived in. And the two of them were the only two that were like, no, thank you. We will stick to the script. We are professionals here, <laughs> which I think really speaks to their character. So, uh, Brad, how do you feel about the this couple? Yeah, it is. It's great to have a character like her who just goes toe to toe with Steve. You know, like she doesn't put up with any crap. She's fighting for wh what she wants and what she believes. And the, the way they argue, there's just there's just no cowering, you know. It's it, it's great to have a character like this, especially in a movie that's set in a time when like mo much of the attention is is paid to the guys and, and not much to the girls. Um, and we even get that at the at the end of the movie when we have the the only characters who get the you know the the epilogue treatment are the guy characters because Lucas considered them the main character, and it's actually something that Gloria Katz and uh, Will Will Hike kind of pushed against. They like didn't like that he um, only did that for the male characters. Um, but I love that that um, Cindy Williams gives her such a full performance that like you you care about what happens to her just as much as you do Steve. Like you're totally invested in their relationship because of their dynamic, and she she just really brings it. Oh yeah, especially like in in teen dramas, the girl that you look back on is always like that's Steve's girl. But no, she is a character and she has choices. And at one point, she says. Fuck Steve. I'm going to go hang out with Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeehaw variant Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. Like she, she gets to make her own choices and they have effects on the other characters. Whereas in a lot of teen movies, it's the opposite where everything that happens to the girl is in response to whatever the boy is doing. Like she is not a man at Pixie dream girl. And I love that. And Okay, Harrison Ford. Let's talk about Harrison Ford, Yeehaw variant Harrison Ford, who's here for like a cup of coffee. He's not in this movie as much as people like to remember him being, but I don't know how anyone watching this movie doesn't see him in this very small role and go, that guy's a fucking star. Because mm -hmm. he is so captivating. Uh, Brad, how do you feel about this role in I guess like <laughs> the the history of Harrison Ford roles. I mean, it's it was for at the time you know when I saw it, it was so funny to look back and see him in this role after knowing him for so long as Indiana Jones and Han Solo. You know, it's it's completely different, and he he plays you know a total douchebag with, with a cowboy hat and who's just driving around in his hot rod. And seeing him in this role was was so funny. And you know, ha having learned since then that like before he got this role, he had basically given up on doing anything Hollywood and he was working as a carpenter. He had a successful carpentry career because at this time he had two kids and he was trying to just put food on the table. So mm -hmm. he was like done with it. And then he got, you know, got called back into it from this. And then obviously, you know, turned it into a very, very lucrative career after that. But yeah, it's, it's such a, um, it, it's funny because there's an interview in the making of documentary where he talks about that. This was the first role he, uh, he had had ever where, it felt like his character, even though it's a small role, actually had a significant um, part in the trajectory of like the plot and what and what happens because you know it's it's what drives Milner to to do that race and it ends up you know bringing uh, Steve and Laurie closer together because of the wreck. 
uh, and it kind of it's it's the event that really brings everything back to to, to Earth and is like, oh wow, we we just had this great night of living, you know, one last night's kids, but here we are, and like reality, you know, has just you know hit us right in the face again. Mm-hmm. Like he he for this movie doesn't really have a villain. I mean, the true villain is the police, obviously. When you when you could just casually fuck around with the police in the fifties and not get shot if you're a white <laughs> kid. But Harrison Ford is the closest thing we have to like a, a true villain, and he does tie into multiple story arcs in this. And you need someone with like that kind of charisma. And I love that he's not like obviously he he's a douchey guy, like clearly he is. But there is parts of him where it's like, oh no, he's still trying to be like kind of suave. He's trying to be charming. And maybe it's just that like that that man's Han Solo. He's the president of the United States. He's Indiana <laughs> fucking Jones. I just love seeing him. He's in drinking. Oh my God. But when he's like badly singing, it's not even bad. He's cheesily singing. <laughs> like it's it's so fun. And I'm like, no, like I get why a girl would be drawn to him other than just like his car and that he's a pretty face. <laughs> Definitely. And I think this is, again, like just speaks to George Lucas as a genuinely good screenwriter when he really cares about it is because in other movies, this character would be a cartoon villain. He would be Belmudo in Greece. He would Mm -hmm. be this like very clearly that guy's the criminal villain. How could she go for him? Right. Whereas in this movie, it's like, nah, I get it. Like he kind of sucks, but I get it. You can do a (laughs) lot worse. (laughs) Right. Like in in the grand scheme of like shitty boys that you hook up with in high school, he's one that you tell stories about when you're in your 30s. Like, you're not going to believe it. I was in this car and it was a drag race. We almost died. It was awful. But dude, he was hot as fuck. Like, (laughs) that's the story you tell with this guy, which I I love that that isn't in here, because if he would have been a more like point blank villain, I don't think that like it would have worked as well because then it then to me it, it starts to feel like a teen fantasy film and not like a nostalgic coming of age teen movie if that makes sense. It's a slice of life. Also something that was brought to my attention that I I should mention by one of our uh, one of our patrons is that uh apparently Harrison Ford so his character's name in this I know we just keep calling him Harrison Ford. His He's name is Ford. Bob. It's Bob Falfa. Apparently, he's named after Robert Dalva, who, uh, in addition to Cindy Williams tragically passing away, I guess he also died recently, and he was really important in the uh, USC friend group that George Lucas was a part of. So, like, that that's also a fun little trivia thing that you know now. Yes. Yeah, oh. uh, similarly, uh, Milner was named after John Milius. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. See, these are the fun things that I like learning on air so everyone can hear me go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so another character that we haven't really fully explored, but we have mentioned, is Mackenzie Phillips as Carol. This is the character that actually like got me to be super, super interested in this movie. My parents pitched it to me because Star Wars, but Mackenzie Phillips was the mom on Disney's So Weird, which was my favorite <laughs> show as a kid. So this was a big thing for me to see her this young um and also she is the og of my favorite archetype of any character in a teen movie which is the mouthy little girl i love she's she's the woodchuck of this movie i'm anytime you have the mouthy little sister character i am 100 percent on board with whatever she does wants says there's no shaking me i'm on her team no matter what (laughs) and she is so 
funny in this movie because she can hold her own against this dude who is like probably in real life, like at least 10 years older than she is. And she's going toe to toe with him this whole movie. And God, I love her. So Brad, how do you feel about Carol? Yeah, I, I love Carol. You know, like I said, like her relationship with Milner is one of my favorite parts. And uh, even though, I, you know, I was, you know, a, a young boy, obviously, you know, there was something that like, I, I related to with her because when I was younger, I, I was babysat by our um, our neighbors across the street. They were they became friends with my parents, and they had two teen daughters, and they constantly babysat me whenever our parents would go out and do stuff. And so I, as a young kid, got to hang out with them and their friends sometimes. And they would like sometimes go to the coffee shop, and I would go with them because this was during a time when like coffee shops were becoming cool, and they were like having jam sessions there. And I would just come with like my little bag of like Star Wars figures and stuff like that and hang out and goof around and like hear them talk about music. And sometimes some of them would talk to me about Star Wars because they also like Star Wars. And so I, I just like I, I connect with her in a way because like it's cool to feel like the kid that is like hanging out with all of the older people uh, and just kind of like enjoying n- not being a kid for a little bit. Oh, totally. Like that kind of generational sharing is, is is so important. I think when you're like a teen, like I distinctly remember that in high school, my freshman year, I was very popular with the seniors um, in like marching band purely because my brother was also a senior and they hated him, but they thought I was fun. So it was like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's truly just him sucking. It's not like, oh, your family's full of like pieces of shit. <laughs> so they thought I was great. And I got invited to a lot of things. <laughs> I, I love that you also refer to it as generational sharing because that's exactly what's happening in this movie, which I love seeing because we one, we don't see this happen very often. And usually when we do, it's a relative, like it's an older sister or it's a cousin or an aunt or something. It's not often that it's somebody random. And this sort of friendship and this relationship is unfortunately kind of going away because there's been a lot of discussions about like power dynamics with like zoomers and a lot of unfortunately a lot of very vocal people not all of not all zoomers but a very large vocal percent of zoomers are like you should not be friends with people older than you because there's a an inherent power dynamic that is imbalanced and you know younger people can you know there's always the concerns of like grooming but i think back to when i was a kid and like some of the most important people in my life were my babysitters and were like the older girls that I did baton with who were like my coaches who like I would be in I don't know elementary junior high and they were in high school and you know exactly what you were talking about Brad is like sitting with them at the diner after a competition and them talking to me kind of as if I was an equal even though like I clearly wasn't but they they talk to you like you're a person and like that is the thing that is so important because when you're around adults adults tend to talk to you like you're a child mm-hmm. and having a teenager or somebody that's even just like a couple years older than you talk to you like a human being is so important and we do see that in some movies like I love the friendship in the movie eighth grade where you know you have like the eighth grader that gets partnered with like a high schooler and she's like let's go to the mall and you can sit at the table and talk and I think you're great and I'll text you if you need help like those relationships are so important because you need to have somebody that you can talk to or like you know relate to that isn't a parent or an authority figure or something like that yeah and it does make me sad that it's kind of going away a little bit. I mean, I also really valued becoming that person as I became a teenager. 
like my mom ran a daycare for, you know, 20 years. So I was always around kids. And there are kids who are now entering college, like freshman, sophomore year of college that I babysat when I was really young, who are now reaching out to me on Facebook that are like, hey, um, I'm questioning my sexuality. Can I talk to you about this? And I'm like, yeah, man, of course you can. Let's talk about it. Or like, hey, I really fucked up. I did something really bad and I'm afraid I'm gonna like get in so much trouble. How do I fix this? And it's like, all right, here's how you do it. Or like, (laughs) it sounds silly, but like when they try drugs for the first time and they're like, what do I do? I'm freaking out, man. And I'm like, (laughs) all right, I got you. Like, let me, let me help you. And knowing that I still and being kind of called on by these people that I've known since they were like children, like it really means a lot to me. Like it feels like, oh, I made a positive impact in this person's life. And that makes me feel good about myself. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't know. It's just like, it's a weird thing. And it's been happening a lot more recently because a lot of these kids are now in college. And I'm like, one, I'm very aware of my mortality now because I cannot believe that they're old enough to be in college. But also it's like, wow, I really like, like it is important. Like these are important things. And so we see that with Milner and Carol and at the end of the movie, you know, he gives her a piece of his car, like, which is essentially like a piece of him, but it does feel like a passing of the torch, like a, like a proverbial passing of the torch of like, I have to grow up now. It's your time to have fun. And that is like, that's why this relationship is my favorite. You're an ogre, just like my father. He won't let me stay out late or play records or anything. Oh, your father won't let you stay out late? No, he's terrible. Once I was at a party and it didn't end till late, he called the cops. Huh? Can you imagine he had the whole police force there? By the way, uh, where is it that you live, Carol? Over in Ramona. Why? Oh, oh no. Uh-uh. You thought I'd tell you where I live? Not me. Not old Carol. The night is young, and I'm not hitting the rack till I get a little action. What are you looking at? Who's that? You know him? He's following awful close. Grab onto something. I especially like that. It, I feel like it also gives Milner kind of like a little bit of a different perspective on youth too, because there's so much of like what is new and what people like and like what is pushing away the things that he loves. And the fact that he comes to like embrace her and like her, it, it changes like the way he he feels about, you know, the next generation. And I think it, it, it does help him, him to grow up. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about him all the time on the show, but Harmony and I's nephew Cash, who is a teenager and is like, you know, making music for the first time. And it like blows my mind whenever I see him, like, because I'm like, oh my God, you're like a, a human being now. What the hell is that about? <laughs> um, but being able to talk to him and have that connection does keep me in check a lot with how I view the younger generations or the people coming up because I'm like, okay, I may not be the target audience for Olivia Rodrigo, but I get it. I get why people are super down with this right now. Or like, I may not fully understand why everybody is like so obsessed with watching videos that also have like subway surfers underneath it. But I also know that it's not the end of the world if that's how kids are consuming media. Like it's just, we're accommodating people being ADHD. Cool, got it, 
this makes sense to me now. Um, and having that connection and having that like realization that like, it's going to be okay because he's so bitter and jaded at the beginning of this, the second he starts talking to her because it's like, you kids don't know anything. You don't know good music. You don't know anything. And seeing him become softened, like that's also part of growing up. I think, especially as a teenager is we're also like angry at the world and being able to be softened is a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Um, You're also angry at just stuff that's that's different, you mm-hmm. know, like anything that you can't understand or anything that's not exactly your thing. You just get you get frustrated about you get mad about because you don't know how to quantify those feelings, especially as a a, a young man from the 50s. Like, I don't know, like the, there, there's there's some growing up you've got to do and I guess some recontextualizing things that you need to do when you're this the, the, this person. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them didn't do it because a lot of these people are now racist boomers in charge of the government okay yeah so let's (laughs) this is like a thing we also had as we were watching it we're like oh i just love these characters and i love this story and then you sit there and you think about timeline wise and you're like a lot of these people probably yell at service workers for having pronoun (laughs) pins now yeah great (laughs) baby hippos are super cute Grown-up hippos can be cute, too, but they're also the most deadly animal on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, like, not a fun realization to have where it's just like, oh, man, like, (laughs) some of these characters probably are awesome and, like, went the Jane Fonda route of being really cool, but some of them probably suck. Oh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's a bummer. (laughs) That's that's just what time capsule movies are, is you're seeing them at, like, their most pure essence, and Mm -hmm. then they're going to go do something and... In case of some of them, I guess not do something, but like, you know, it's just that's the future. That's something else. We're not focused on this is a teen movie and it's very a teen <laughs> movie. And also apparently Ron Howard doesn't want to think of it as a teen movie, BJ, right? Okay, yes. So I did read this interview. Uh it was in Parade where Ron Howard was talking about the movie for the 50th anniversary. And if this is not the most like I make elevated horror kind of like I don't want to call this what it is statement. I don't know what it is, but he goes, it's a teen movie. Yes. About kids and cars and cruising dust to dawn. But there's something else. It's about loss of innocence and a cultural transition. What it means to grow up. And it's like, yeah, man, that's a teen movie. Yeah, like that, That's the most I'm an old man over explaining this movie thing I can imagine. Like it like, very much feels like I don't want to call it a teen movie because there's we we know culturally there's a negative connotation with something being a teen movie, but this is a fucking teen movie, man. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. There's there's so much of like what would define John Hughes movies later on in this movie too, and it's it's kind of amazing that it took so long for a lot of the, the those traits in this movie to come back and be so prominent in teen movies again. Totally. Uh, Going back to the teen movie hell book, uh, Mike McPadden identifies this and he goes, every single graffiti character became a teen movie archetype. Richard Dreyfuss is a nice guy out for a night of kicks chasing Suzanne Somers as a mystery blonde in a white Thunderbird. Then Ron Howard and Cindy Williams are high school sweethearts torn asunder by graduation. Add Paul Lamatt as a hell-raising greaser, Mackenzie Phillips as a as reckless jailbait, uh, Candy Clark as a sweet but fast hair hopper, and Harrison Ford as a scary drag racer. Above all, Graffiti serves up Charles Martin Smith as a boilerplate-setting four-eyed nerd named Terry the Toad. And it's like, <laughs> he's totally right. They all become archetypes in the the 
archetypes evolve, obviously, because scary drag racer then just becomes like dangerous bad boy. Like the 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 nice but fast hair hopper then just becomes kind of like the slut with a heart of gold character that you would have in teen movies moving forward. Mm-hmm. Like they like they he laid he made the blueprint. Yeah, like, okay, so I don't know if this is a thing for you all, but I'm curious. So one of the things I remember the most about American Graffiti was how it was remembered. I, I guess that that's in follow suit for it. That makes sense. But, like, it would be, like, um, like some Turner Classic Movies, like, top 100 movie countdown or some talking head segment I would see growing up where you'd have people talking about American Graffiti. And aside from the fact that they always tried to make it seem like way more zany and action packed than it actually is, where it'd be like, here's clips of them ripping the back axle off that police car. Here's them drag racing. Here's them doing all this stuff that is like maybe uh, 1% of the movie. It's not what the majority of it is. I feel like it gets a lot of like graces and leniency because like it's not a bad movie and I'm not not conflating this at all. But it gets a lot of uh, people are very generous towards it because it's the first and because it's the first, it has to be more impactful and more meaningful than everything else because it's all just a ripoff. But I think that specifically with that, you had this film get elevated as like a pillar of cinema. It's not teen cinema. It's cinema because it had all of these like old directors who go, I remember watching this movie or I remember being the age of this. And they held it up as like this torch of like unbelievable, untouchable filmmaking. And it held, I think it had that reputation for a really long time. And then you started to like diversify those opinions of just like, Hey, it's just, let's not just purely listen to old white directors. And I don't know what like the overall legacy of this film is. I, I think I agree with that that somewhat, but I do think that the movie um, does does deserve a lot of credit for being innovative in a variety of ways oh, of course. For, for cinema in general, like especially when it comes to fundamental things. Like this was one of the first movies to have such a rich, plentiful soundtrack full of old hits, you know, like the, mm-hmm. uh, this movie came along at a time when the job of music supervisor wasn't even a thing that wouldn't happen until later. And George Lucas specifically uh, much like you know, people like James Gunn when they write movies that, that have a prominent soundtrack, he wrote songs into the script because he wanted them to be an integral part of how the scene played out. And so you you have that that aspect of it being groundbreaking. But on top of that, so many people were against the idea of having all these different storylines play out where you're cutting around to each one of them rather than following one from its beginning to its end. And they felt they hated like that storytelling device. And so there's there's a lot of stuff here that like was never really done commonly before. And like it influences, you know, so much after that. So even though like it's it's definitely, um, you know, a, a very important teen movie, I think that it is like an important movie to like cinema at large. Oh, I agree um, with all of that. Absolutely. Like, I also love that, like, there's a lot of really fun filmmaking te- techniques about how, like, George Lucas lights this movie. Like, all of the dashboards basically have, like, low light setups. So you can actually see people's faces. Like, there's there's a million small touches. Um, for some reason, there's, like, a Wells Fargo with giant spotlights in front of it during that shaving cream scene <laughs> yeah. that don't make any sense, but it looks good. Like, I'm fine. I, I like that. I think that as far as like the actual movie is concerned, like the actual cinema of making the film from a filmmaker perspective elevates it far more than the actual substance of the film. And like, I like the film. I think it's actually aged much better than most of its contemporaries that we'll see in like the next 10 years. But 
I think that because of that, they are rejecting the teen label of it because they're focusing on all of like the craftsmanship of it and oh, yeah, not yeah. the actual content. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Definitely. I mean, so when you were mentioning like when this shows up on like TCM or any of those like AFI lists or whatever, they do tend to talk about this movie as if it's The Hollywood Nights, which is a movie from 1980 with Tony Danza and Fran Drescher mm. and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. It's like her first role is in that. And it is the wacky hijinks version of American Graffiti. It is not a good movie. Like it's really, I think it has like a like a 15 or something on Rotten Tomatoes, which obviously like fucked up metric the fl- doesn't The flawed count. system of Rotten yeah, Tomatoes. Yeah, the obviously. flawed system, but like the, it's not a good movie. But a lot of people tend to remember American Graffiti as being a movie like that when it's not that at all. Like this movie is so much more introspective and it is so much more deep and, and meaningful. Um, I think about, like when when Richard Dreyfus meets Wolfman Jack and like he doesn't realize he's talking to the actual Wolfman Jack. And this is another moment to me where it feels like that generational torch passing where he's giving him life advice and he doesn't have to. Like Wolfman Jack is a weird fucking guy. <laughs> um, that's like putting it li- like this is probably the most normal he's ever been presented. And I do know that George Lucas had like a weird fascination with him. I think at one point he wanted to do like a documentary about his life, um, which I would kill to see <laughs> because he's just a weirdo. Um, <laughs> but he's, you know, he's hearing the kid out and he's talking to him and he he's telling him, you know, to grow up, but without saying grow up, which is really, really nice. And I mean, for people to understand, like, just kind of what brand of weirdo he is, this is the character that Jack Black plays at, like, the dead niche celebrity uh, pool party in the Weird Al biopic. Um, that's the energy we're dealing with here is mm-hmm. just wackadoo guy um and then he's like very grounded and like a person and being very kind uh to to richard dreyfus which is just very lovely and like those are the moments that don't get talked about when we talk about american graffiti oh definitely like it's it's a slice of life it's a hangout movie and i don't think that that's generally the part that people emphasize is, is, is kind of what my giant my giant takeaway is, is is on this tangent about about its its legacy, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you can look at the films that are going to follow that are going to very much owe kind of everything they have to this movie. That's which every is, teen movie. All well, teen yes, movies. Yes, every teen movie, <laughs> but like very specifically things like Dazed and Confused do not exist without this movie. John Hughes's career does not exist without this movie. Um, but I think for like, audiences today that look back if they are not familiar with it. American Graffiti has um, what I like to call the Beatles problem, which is that if you are coming to it new, you've heard so many people do what the Beatles did and like expand upon it and make it more complicated that you don't realize like how brilliant they were because they were the first to do it. And American Graffiti is the same way. Like you watch this movie and you're like, I've seen this movie 700 different times, but you don't realize like this is the first though. And that's why it's important. Oh yeah. If if I may read a a, a small list of things here, of just some of the 1950s, early sixties coming of age movies that exist out there. The list that I came up with, which is incomplete, is Stand By Me, Hairspray, The Outsiders, Badlands, Grease, Grease 2, Dead Poets Society, The Wanders, The Man on the Moon, Pleasantville, Crybaby, Peggy Sue Got Married, The Last Picture Show, Hairspray Again, Diner, Elvis, and Back to the Future. 
<laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. And you're like, that's like, that is scratching the surface yeah. of yes. movies that, you know, only exist because American Graffiti existed and kicked ass. Exactly. And like, there's a lot more going on in those movies, like plot wise, but that's because th- this movie is kind of rudimentary if you don't have context. Like Buddy Holly doesn't sound interesting until you actually hear stuff that came before Buddy Holly and go, oh no, but his stuff is so much better. <laughs> <laughs> And so to close things out, I will go back to teen movie hell and give Mike's ending because I think it's perfect. He says, more American Graffiti, 1979, is an ambitious but jumbled time-tripping sequel. George Lucas made some other movies after this one, too, but who needs them? The term (laughs) work of genius will be applied to exactly one movie in teen movie hell, and you're looking at it right here, right now, filed confidently under American Graffiti. That... I think is like such an honored way to talk about this movie from the man who wrote the Bible on the teen movie to be like, this is the only one that is like a true work of genius. And that that's high praise. That's very high praise. So harmony, the time has come. American graffiti is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? I mean, it, it's got to be a yes, right? Like, like there was never really a question about it. And American Graffiti is absolutely like, it holds up so much better than you would, like, it's so much better than you really think it would be. Like, mm-hmm. over on the Patreon, we did, like, Animal House this month, and it's like, woof. Like, that came after, and it's aged way worse. And mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating to, like, think about. So, yeah, this is Judge Lucas at, like, his most pure and distilled I think, and it's it's good. Like it's good. It's it's a it's it holds up well. Like he used documentary filmmaking techniques apparently for making this, and it kind of did create like the documentary in fictional form of what this time period looks like in a much more sincere way than like so many campier things like Greece does, even though that's what people do think of when they think of like the fifties and early sixties. Mm-hmm. It's it's an it's 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 a great piece of cinema, but you actually have to like take the time to unpack why it's great. And also, respectfully, Mike, I know Angel is right next to American Graffiti in that book you wrote, and it's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think that takes us out on American Graffiti. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, you can find me writing at SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderson. Uh, I also have two podcasts that I do myself. One is called Go Flicks Yourself that I do with two friends of mine uh, where we chat about the most recent movies we've seen. We assign each other movies to watch each week and generally just have a lot of tomfoolery about movies and pop culture and whatnot. And then another podcast called the 10 to 1 podcast, which is uh, an SNL Saturday Night Live recap and review podcast where we uh, talk about new episodes of SNL and break down each sketch. Right now, since there's a strike happening and SNL's on hiatus anyway, uh, we are currently making our way through the roster of Saturday Night Live movies. Um, we've made it through Blues Brothers and Wayne's World and Coneheads and soon to be coming up on Wayne's World 2. So if you like Saturday Night Live and you like those movies, feel free to check that out. Uh, and I also have an Instagram called Brad's Junk, where I highlight a lot of different snacks and fast food and drinks and whatnot, because I'm a kind of a snack nerd. And so check out at look at Brad's Junk on Instagram if you like to keep up with new snacks and stuff like that. 
I salute you for some of those SNL films that you're going to have to watch. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> hey, all I'm saying is uh, the A Night at the Roxbury Defender has logged on. <laughs> oh, I love A Night at the Roxbury, so I'm right there with you. You, you, all, can, I, you all can have fun with that. I'm just saying. <laughs> You're going to have to deal with It's Pat eventually. Oh, for sure. That and uh, the other one we're kind of uh, dreading is Stuart Saves His Family. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're also we're going to do Superstar at, at some point on the pod. We have to. And I'll get to tell the story about how I did the dance from Superstar in the third grade talent show because my parents did not monitor the media I was watching. <laughs> That's pretty mild as far as things they let you watch. That's very true. I mean, I was watching John Waters at the same time, and woof. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour, and over at Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as their theme song. Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week inspired by American Graffiti? I, I mean, I wasn't going to just go full pastiche, but I definitely want something that fits the right vibe of this and also feels like summertime. So the band I am shouting out this week is Johnny and the Man Kids. And they have an EP that they released just last month called It's Nice to Meet You Again. It's very much like a... A summertime indie rock band with a lot of like classic sensibilities, but it's indie rock by way of like the 2010s. So there's a lot of like reverb and synth and it's just very uh, sunshiny. It's, 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 it's good music. It's good like driving around kind of music. I think it fits the correct vibe of what American Graffiti is all about. Awesome. So that is Johnny and the Man Kids, which absolutely is like one of those like 60s bands no one's ever heard of kind of names where it's uh -huh. like, oh, what's the band you're listening to? Oh, that's uh, Johnny and the Man Kids. That's Jay <laughs> and the Americans. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, all righty. Thank you again for listening. And as always, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.